and welcome to Financial Residency, Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. I am so excited to have Daniel Wren here as our guest today. You probably already know him from his twice-weekly podcast, Financial Vitals Check. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks, Tammy. Thanks for having me. I have physicians frequently ask me, you know, they've already maxed out their 401k, their 457, 529 plan for college savings, but then they have no idea where to go from there. I know if you asked a thousand financial planners, you'd probably get a thousand answers, but you're the one I trust. So I thought I would ask you that question. That's a good question. It comes up a lot. Before I get into some options to consider, I always think it's a good kind of checkpoint to remind yourself if you haven't already thought of this is just thinking about like, what is the goal? So oftentimes people, you know, just think I need to max out these plans and save just as much as possible. Or maybe sometimes the other crowd of people is like, I need to max stuff out and then I'm good to go. But I think the best approach is to say, okay, well, why am I doing this in the first place? And usually the answer is like saving for retirement or, you know, there's some goal in mind, hopefully. And so I think it's good to check on that first and see like how much should you be saving in the first place to be on track for that goal. Because in some cases, when we explore that, maxing out, maybe theoretically maxing out this 401k is plenty for the goal. In that case, you're good to go. But I think it's good to just check up on that question and have that be like kind of the background before you explore this. And hypothetically, like, let's just assume, you know, your answer to that question is, I need to save well beyond like what my 401k provides. And so in that case, it kind of depends, like you said, like there's a lot of different answers or different directions we can go. You already threw out one that I think sometimes people miss. I think you mentioned the 457 plan. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's the 401k plan. I kind of grouped together for this conversation. Let's just group together like the 401k and the 403b. Some of you probably have a 403b. Some of you have a 401k. Sometimes you have both as an option, but the reason I group them together because they kind of have one limit collectively. So as of this recording, 20,500, that's the annual limit. But if you put into a 401k, you can only put in 20,500 in the collective of those two. You could even put half in the 403b, half in the 401k. Doesn't matter how you do it. That total is still 20,500 between the two of them. Once you fill up that bucket, call it like the 401k slash 403 bucket. The 457 bucket is a completely separate bucket. So sometimes people don't realize that's a separate limit, a separate 20,500. And so that can be a fantastic alternative to kind of tax shelter beyond just what that 401k, 403b provides. You have to watch out for 457s because they're, I guess there's like two flavors of 457. There's like the governmental 457. I don't know if you've ever heard of the differences. So there's yeah, governmental 457 and non-governmental 457. Okay. So whether you have one or the other, you can still max it out separately from your 401k or 403b. It's important to know which one of those you have because, for example, the governmental 457 is, for the sake of today, like it's basically almost exactly the same as the 401k or 403b. Very similar rules, pretty flexible. It's pretty well protected. You know, when you leave, you can roll it over into a new plan, a lot of flexibility. Whereas like the non-governmental 457, 
is very inflexible. For example, if the hospital goes bankrupt, the creditors can potentially access those $457. And if you leave, sometimes they have very rigid rules, like you have to cash it all out all at once. So that can create some huge limitations, even to the point where oftentimes we're suggesting not to fund that account, okay. even though it provides that tax benefit. Either way, the 457 is the first alternative typically to consider for tax sheltering beyond that. And then, you know, the, you got the backdoor Roth IRA. That's a fun buzzword, but. I'm um, somewhat familiar with it, but I couldn't tell you any details about it, honestly. Yeah. So backdoor Roth IRA actually doesn't mean anything. There's no official term backdoor Roth IRA. All you're doing is funding a traditional IRA and then converting it to Roth. Okay. Post-tax uh, dollars, right? Yeah. After tax, well, assuming you can't deduct it, which most of you all listening probably can't, you're funding into the IRA with after-tax dollars and you can't deduct it on your tax return. And then you're opting to convert it to Roth typically in the same year. It doesn't have to be, but typically in the same year. Basically, tax-wise, it's almost exactly the same as putting it directly into the Roth but you have to take that extra step because if you make above a certain income, you can't directly fund a Roth. Okay. Which as I'm saying this, I mean, anytime you look at it, you're like, that's stupid. I mean, <laughs> and it is, it's very ridiculous <laughs> that they have these conflicting rules. The IRS has even like come out and said, well, you know, we're okay with that strategy, even though you're like taking steps to work around funding the Roth. So I'm sure there's lots of resources we can share that are, that can kind of break down the details of that. And there's a lot of considerations with the backdoor Roth. That's like the big kind of warning I would put out there with the backdoor Roth. It sounds simple and I'm kind of trying to make it simple for today just cause we're doing a quick hitter, but there's a lot of like little stuff that can come into play and a lot of steps you got to make sure you're checking off that if you're not familiar with it, you want to definitely make sure you kind of check all those check boxes. Okay. I would assume easier to go through a financial planner to use that backdoor Roth than trying to do it yourself. You know, that depends on the person. I'm sure most of you guys listening could completely do it yourself. I mean, if you get through medical school, I would say you could do this backdoor <laughs> Roth thing <laughs> like that complicated, but you know, the white coat investor, Jim, if y'all have not read the white coat investor has like a pretty solid post on the backdoor Roth IRA. So I'm sure Tammy, you could link to that in the show notes, but I love to point to that because it's a really thorough breakdown of the backdoor Roth IRA. If you look at the post plus the comments, it's like a hundred pages long. <laughs> it's kind of funny because first it's simple, but then you get into the weeds of it and then the issues to consider. So some people read that and they're like, sweet, like I got this. And that kind of person probably shouldn't hire a planner to help them with it and can just knock it out themselves and save the money. But if you read through that and you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> That's the type of person that probably should think about iron help. Gotcha. What about like getting into the non-governmental type of investment plans? Are there certain directions that you recommend people start with their investment portfolio? Or is that just so individualized that that's not really a fair question to ask in the first place? No, we can talk about like general considerations. So let's say you've max out everything that's available. And sometimes there's some other types of plans available through work. So always make sure you're aware of all the work plans, like tax sheltered work plans. 
for example, sometimes they offer like a cash balance plan. That's another type of tax shelter that can go in addition to the 457 401k. So that's another thing to throw out is just make sure you understand all the available options through work first. But like, let's say you've maxed everything out in that case, you know, the next bucket is typically just like plain Jane, like brokerage accounts, or sometimes you call them taxable investments or, uh, you know, non-qualified plans. There's a bunch of different terms you throw out for them, but basically it's just an investment account in your name. And that's typically the next bucket people will consider the way those work, you know, as you might expect, they're not, they don't offer as much of the tax benefits that you would get with like your 403B, 401k, all those types of plans. But on the flip side, they don't come with like the baggage of like having to keep it tied up till retirement. Like there's no like extra limitations on it in terms of like letting the account or the fund stay in there for retirement or education or whatever. So like they're the most flexible type of investment account available. You know, that's the big advantage to them. So less tax benefits, but more flexibility. Those are the big kind of big points with those. I think the important consideration on those types of accounts is you have to also consider the tax costs as an expense. Okay. So with the tax sheltered plans, what we were talking about at the very beginning, all of those tax costs or tax expenses are really not an expense to consider. You're just looking at the fund expenses, or if you're paying an advisor, the advisor expenses, that's all the expenses really you have to think about. But when you get into this other type of account that gets taxed as it grows, then you have to throw that third expense into the equation, the tax costs over time and pay attention to that because there's different ways to manage it and it's going to cause different taxation. So the big key with those kinds of accounts is making sure you're aware of the tax cost and ideally you're trying to minimize it as much as possible. There's a few ways to kind of help with that. So I'll throw out some ways that hurt you on taxes first, just to kind of look at that. So like, for example, lately I've seen like Robinhood accounts, you know, you know, Robinhood mm -hmm. and GameStop stock and, you know, stock trading has been pretty popular lately. It's been more popular lately than I guess Robinhood helped to kind of bring that back. But if you're trading stocks regularly, that's pretty terrible for taxable accounts because you're like triggering these gains. Okay. And even probably short-term gains. So like if you trigger a, when I say a gain, when you buy something, say you buy something for a hundred bucks and you sell for $200, that's a hundred dollar gain. That's when taxes get triggered. That's one of the things you can control because if you don't sell it, it doesn't trigger a gain one of the areas of tax and those kinds of accounts you can control. And if you hold it for a short period of time, so like under a year, it's a short-term capital gain versus if you keep it for beyond a year, it's a long-term capital gain. So short-term capital gains taxes are way worse. I mean, it's taxed at your normal tax bracket. Okay. Whereas long-term capital gains are more favorable tax treatment. They have a separate tax bracket. I mean, ideally you're just like 
deferring taxes as long as possible and avoiding short-term capital gains at all costs. But by like trading, you're going to tend to incur gains and more short-term capital gains probably. So definitely day trading, I would discourage that anyway, but like for tax purposes also, it's typically not as efficient. Now, if you, on the flip side, like if you want to work proactively to minimize taxes, something like tax loss harvesting, that's like a strategy where you're taking tax losses intentionally, instead of taking tax gains, you're in intentionally triggering tax losses to try to defer gain as much as possible. And that's one that's a beast of a topic. So we'll try to stay out of the, I told Tammy at the beginning, before we started recording, I'm like, well, I'm going to try my best to stay out of the weeds. Cause a lot of these topics are like pretty intense in themselves. We can definitely link to some content on these topics that cover this more in depth, but tax loss harvesting is a strategy where you're essentially, it's kind of the reverse of what I was talking about before, like where you're triggering gains. Tax loss harvesting is like triggering losses and avoiding gains. It effectively like pushes or defers out tax into the future. Cause that's what we want to do typically with taxes is we want to defer as long as possible. And with those kind of account, you defer it till you die and it goes to your heirs tax-free. So tax-wise, that's the ultimate, but you know, you don't get to enjoy your money while you're alive, which I'm sure we all want to get to enjoy our money, at least to some extent. Sure. You had mentioned earlier about developing work plans. Sorry, I'm kind of swinging back to where we started. Yeah. And you have to realize what you're trying to save money for. Assuming it's for retirement, do you try and back into the number that a person's going to need on an annual basis to figure out how much money they need to save year to year? Or do you have a different way to get to that point? There's a bunch of ways to do it and it can get really complicated quickly. Like if you're working with a financial planner, like the, the analysis we use to calculate it is like really complicated. You probably, if you're doing it yourself, you probably don't need like that as complicated of a methodology to do it. You can just do kind of a uh, more straightforward calculation. The reason we do it is it's a touch better, you know, if you use this more robust, like a Monte Carlo analysis, if anybody knows what that is, is the analysis we use. It's kind of like running a bunch of different scenarios and then backing into how much you need. That's how most financial planners do it. But if you're doing it yourself, when I run my numbers, a lot of times I don't quite go to that level. Cause I kind of know like, let's get a pretty good number for now. And I got like 30 years to retirement. So you can run like a spreadsheet type of analysis and like back into what you need. So that's a more straightforward analysis where you're just kind of like looking at the future need and coming up with the present value of it today. If you're doing it yourself, you kind of got to go through those calculations yourself. If you're working with a planner, you know, lean on them to tell you what you need, but you know, you can typically back into like an annual number that you need. Now it'll depend, it'll differ a little bit on, you know, whether or not you are able to tax shelter it. So if you can avoid the tax cost, it's going to, you know, essentially be a lower number that you have to save. It's kind of a circular calculation, but. That makes sense. I just listened to your podcast this morning about real estate investing. You were talking about how much housing costs have just increased exponentially over the past couple of years. Do you feel like trying to get into real estate at this point is worthwhile or have we kind of missed the boat and need to wait until it starts to lull again and some of the prices and that type of thing? Yeah. Real estate is always, I'm glad you brought it up because that's a common 
consideration, people will often say, oh, well, what about real estate? Like as another alternative to tax shelter on top of like my work plans. What's interesting about real estate as someone that's worked one-on-one -on -one with a bunch of physicians and their families, what's so interesting to me about real estate is there's just so many people that own like one property. And when you talk to them after they've owned it for a while, they typically are like real negative about it. <laughs> They're like, ah, <laughs> oh. now that's not everybody. That's probably like 80% of people I talk to, like 20% of them really like love it and kind of, you know, ends up growing and that sort of thing. So I think the huge thing about real estate I would emphasize is you have to look at it more like a business opportunity or a side hustle kind of thing. And I think you should have reasons beyond just the numbers for doing it because that's where people get into trouble is they get into it just for the numbers and then they end up like frustrated when they have to go plunge a toilet <laughs> True, because that that's, True. you don't have to plunge a toilet on your retirement account. So like real estate, somebody's got to plunge a toilet. If you're not going to plunge a toilet, like you got to hire somebody to plunge a toilet and if they don't go do it, ultimately you have to do it yourself. So real estate's a different beast. I think that's underplayed a lot of times. Like people love to call it passive income. It's not passive income, especially when you directly own real estate. But to answer your question, real estate can be like a fantastic additional tax shelter. It's a great tax preferential way to invest, but it comes with a lot, a lot of baggage, a lot of active, you know, man hours, woman hours, putting in that you got to get your hands dirty, basically. So that's kind of like my disclaimer for real estate. <laughs> so when we talk about this, I guess it makes me think of the person that, you know, either has a house that they rent out on a yearly basis or the someone mm. or the person that's trying to do VRBO. What about trying to get into some type of real estate collective investment, you know, a group? Like a syndication. Yeah, exactly. Are those better, worse? Yeah. So syndications, I was kind of talking about like direct real estate at first. So that's okay. when I say direct real estate, I mean like you buy an individual property and own it and run it. And whether it's a VRBO or a long-term rental or whatever, that's the most pure or active form of real estate. And then kind of a step back the other direction is like a syndication or a private real estate investment of some sort. And basically that's like, you know, you're owning a slice of the pie of somebody else's real estate deal. So that is a step back the direction, like I said, but it still involves some active component. Like when you're talking about, we'll use syndications. So that's like where you're, you know, buying into one deal, like a slice. Somebody has to like screen the deal. You have to read the contracts and understand what the expenses are and make sure you're investing basically in a good deal. And if it's not good, you need to know how to get out or what alternative to go to. So there's not as much as like plunging the toilets and owning the real estate directly, but like there is some component of work involved where you have to be on your game and you got to kind of run it like a business and you got to watch expenses and all that stuff, know how to screen deals that a lot of people, you know, don't really want to do. Uh, and when they look into it, they're like, eh, this stinks. And they just pick a deal. So if that's you, like, definitely don't do that. Like, it's not, that's where you get into trouble is you just kind of pick a few syndications because, you know, either somebody is pitching them to you or, you know, a buddy did it or something like that. I would discourage doing that. On the other hand, if you treat it like a business and you really kind of go through, uh, you educate yourself and you kind of know the steps, 
that can be fantastic. The other thing too, I would point out is most people own real estate in their investments. Okay. So like if you have a 401k, if you have like the Vanguard total stock market, it owns a slice of real estate. Like real estate is like tucked into these big funds. And a lot of times people don't realize, and you can own a real estate fund separately. Like you can buy a Vanguard uh, real estate market fund that basically invests in real estate. If you wanted to own real estate, or maybe you already own it and don't realize it, and maybe you want to own more of it, you can do it like, that's the most passive way of owning it is where you just buy a fund and, you know, own it. And there's no, you know, it's kind of, uh, you don't have to get involved because what I find is a lot of times people don't exactly want to get involved in the, the stuff I was just describing, but some people do. Do you think that's a safer way to be involved? If you're in a huge group like that, I'm sure you've got, you know, just a very tiny slice of the pie in multiple pieces of real estate versus having a huge piece of pie and, you know, two pieces of real estate. Is that generally a safer way to invest? I would say like diversified. It's definitely the most diversified way is to own like, for example, the Vanguard real estate fund syndication is probably more diversified than owning a single family home directly. So the least diversified is to go into a city and buy one house because I mean, it's, you got like that one city could have like a downturn and, you know, or the area could, you could have a tornado or, you know, whatever. There's a bunch of like new risks that you would introduce into the equation by just having one property. But the more, you know, the more properties you can invest in, the more locations you can have, that's going to be, I don't know if, I guess, safer, I would call it like diversified, which I, you know, some people kind of translate that to safer, but I think everybody's different. That's what's so, so fun about all this stuff. It's like a lot of different paths to the, to the to good get to your goals. Yeah. Right. 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 Do you have any high risk, high reward type things that you like to dabble in or, you know, recommend to some of your clients? When we start talking about risk, I think I encourage all of our clients to take the most amount of risk they're comfortable with. I think there's a difference between like gambling risk and like smart risk, I guess. <laughs> sure. So a lot of times there's confusion around those two. And there's, so for example, I was mentioning like GameStop, all throughout cryptocurrency. Those are some like speculative type investments, like very volatile and, but could end up being like great investments. I, the, you know, in theory, th those are in reality, those are higher risk investments. I think that's a, a step towards the direction of the gambling type risk. Okay. It's not gambling. Gambling is going to the casino and like, you're going to lose your money long-term, but like there's a safer form of risk, like a, a more diversified form of risk. Like just owning the entire stock market is actually a fantastic way to take a lot of risk. So I typically encourage people to go like that direction. And if they're wanting to take a lot of risk and just the more diversified route where they're, you know, owning the entire stock market. The science says that's a more efficient way to do it. But the temptation is usually to go towards the other direction. Cause like there's all the shiny objects and everything. It's like GameStop and crypto and not that those are bad. It's just like they're, you're introducing a speculation component, which, you know, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty and historically 
uh, you don't do as well with those if okay. we're looking at the masses. Anything in general that you would recommend, I guess, just to the public? Any, I'm not even sure exactly what I'm asking here, Daniel. <laughs> I think for investing, it's a, you can probably tell from the conversation, it's like, it's a beefy topic. It's easy. Each one of these points we're hitting on, like there's books written on each of the slices of what we're talking about. So it's a huge topic. So when in doubt, like I would really encourage everyone to try to keep it super simple. And that's also why, I, like what I was just saying is kind of a little bit simpler approach. It's like, if you can just invest in passive index funds that spread it out over the entire market, that's simpler than trying to pick stocks or the Vanguard real estate fund. That's simpler than trying to find the best syndication. So when in doubt, go simple and go for tax efficiency, like, you know, maximizing tax sheltered plans. Now I'm not like discouraging going the other direction, but like, as you go the other direction, you need to understand like what you're doing. Like if you don't, if you can't explain it to somebody else, you don't need to be doing it yourself. So when in doubt, start simple. You know, if you have the desire to kind of work towards some of these more uh, advanced or, uh, you know, complicated things, you just need to make sure you're educating yourself along the way. Okay. I know you have been very, very careful on your podcast to say that, you know, you're not there to sell yourself. It is absolutely educational, but if there is someone that's looking for a financial planner, how would they get in touch with you, Daniel? Probably the best way is our planning firm's website is Ren Financial. So W-R-E-N-N-E financial.com. Okay. You can check us out there and and if you have questions, I'm always happy to answer, you know, one-off questions, or we can turn it into a podcast. There's all like 90% of the podcast I think we've done. It's like somebody asked a question. So good deal. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Anytime, Tammy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I'd like to thank all of the listeners for tuning in and I hope you'll all join me next week for Grand Rounds. 